If you are a female coach, consultant, or service provider, I have just launched a free online community for us. This is a place where like-minded female entrepreneurs gather from all over the world to support each other and grow together. I know this journey can feel lonely at times, but I don't want you to feel that. We're all in this together. Now, inside, I offer so much value, including my recent six-figure system five-day challenge. All the replays are in there and waiting for you for a limited time. So if you want a like-minded community of soul sisters on the same journey as you, come and join us. All you have to do is head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash six to join Six Figure Sisters. I cannot wait to see you inside. In episode 539 with none other than Layla Homozi, we are talking all about a CEO mindset, hiring, leadership, imposter syndrome, overcoming self-doubt, how to create amazing life-changing content, and so much more. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide, Comparisonitis, and Time Magic. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Hey, beautiful, and welcome back to the show. I am so excited about this episode because I absolutely love and adore Layla. And for those of you that have never heard of her, over the last seven years, she has started and scaled four eight-figure businesses across four different industries. Just let that sink in for a minute. She is an active CEO of Acquisitions.com, a portfolio of companies which currently exceeds $200 million per year in revenue, my friends. She is known for her expertise in scaling businesses by focusing on the people, which you're going to hear a lot about in this conversation. She is passionate about mentorship and teaching CEOs how to build a company through praise rather than punishment. Building a culture that reinforces employees to work hard and enjoy what they do. This is something that she's very, very passionate about. And for everything that we mentioned in today's conversation, you can check out in the show notes and that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 539. Now let's bring on the incredible Layla Homozi. Layla, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? That's a funny question. I don't eat breakfast. That's just coffee. Coffee? Gatorade? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I chug like uh, water when I first wake up and then I have like a half a cup of coffee. So. Yeah. That's what fuels you. That's how you do your 14 hour days. I think that's just me liking what I do. <laughs> yeah. No, I think a lot of people actually ask me, they're like, do you just like chug caffeine? I'm like, no, like I have a decaf right here. Like I am a decafer. <laughs> if I drink caffeine, I crash. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, I get the jitters. For me, I can't do it, but you got to do what feels good and right for you. Yeah, if you want to do six cups a day, do you? Now, for those that are unfamiliar with your story, 
How on earth did you go from being arrested six times to a $100 million net worth by the age of 28? Gosh, I think it all starts with learning to work on yourself. I don't think that that was something that was prioritized at that point in my life. And I think that a lot of people end up in places they don't want to be because they're constantly trading their future for the present. And I was constantly doing that. I was trading what could be my future for present day. And I think what, when everything changed is when I made the switch. And I decided, I'm going to trade today for my future rather than my future for today. And that's when everything started going in the right direction for me. It was that switch. And I think it would say like accompanied with, honestly, it's like, it's really funny when I tell the story because it's just like, I just decided. And I think that what most people don't know how to do is make a real decision. And I think that if you look at what a decision is, it's cutting off all other options. And that's really what I did is I, I hit what you could say is like rock bottom, right? Where I was like, this is, I feel disgusted with myself. I'm very disappointed in myself. I don't like where I'm at. I don't like my life. I don't like the direction I'm going. And then I truly made a decision. And I think that that's where people go wrong because they're scared of the decision. And they're scared of like, how is that going to feel when I really don't have any option but to change? Like when my back is actually against the wall because I don't have anywhere else to go. And I think that I don't know a better way to change than to do that. And I know that that can be frightening. It's not for everybody, but it worked for me. And I think that that's what I really did is I changed my environment. You know, I moved across the country. I moved out of a house with six friends into an apartment by myself. I threw away all the bad food in my house. I threw away all my alcohol and drugs. I cut off everybody that had anything to do with that, I would say, like phase of my life. And I put myself in a situation where if I were not to change my behaviors, then I wouldn't succeed. You know, I put myself surrounded by people and in a job where I had to change my behavior in order to succeed. And I think that prior to that, the issue was that in order to maintain my job, in order to maintain my friends, I didn't need to do anything different. I could still embody all those really bad habits. I could have those bad habits and still maintain whatever status I had in that group of friends at that job, et cetera. And so for me, a lot of it came from engineering my environment to make it easy to change, not hard. And a lot of people try to fight their environment because they're scared to change it. You know, I get that. It's scary to change all those things. But it makes it much harder to change. You know, people are like, you got to use your willpower. And I'm like, willpower runs out. <laughs> you know, like the smart thing to do is to consolidate how many decisions you have to make in a day by changing your environment to make it easy for you to win, not hard. And I think that up to that point, I had an environment that made it hard for me to be a successful, motivated, determined person. And so I had to change it and make it so that it was hard not to be based on the people I was around, the job I was in, the city I lived in. And so that was really what got me started on my journey is like, first it was stopping drinking, stopping doing drugs, getting new friends. Then it was losing almost 100 pounds. Then it was moving across the country by myself, getting a job, learning sales, learning marketing. And then it was taking a risk, you know, quitting my job to pursue a business, not knowing if I was going to be able to figure it out. You know, all the meanwhile, you know, I think people always continue to say to me, it's like, it pains me inside because what they always say is they're like, gosh, I, like, I would do all those things Layla did, but I'm just so scared and anxious. And I'm like, good God, you know, like 
me too, still today. (laughs) You know, like it doesn't go away, but I have a different relationship with that fear and anxiety than I did back then. You know, I think when you're hiding by taking drugs, drinking alcohol, you know, partying, avoiding responsibility, it's like this constant buffering of fear and anxiety. And I think what I realized at one point was doing drugs, drinking alcohol, partying, avoiding responsibility. And I still feel insanely anxious and I still feel scared. The only one way is going to drive my life forward in a direction that is compelling. And it's not this way. And so it's, it's interesting. It's like to everyone out there that's trying to change their life, it's like, that's the question I pose. It's like, you're already feeling like crap. You might as well feel like crap, but go in a direction that maybe has better outcomes. Yeah, totally, totally. What I'm hearing is like, in spite of the fear or anxiety or the doubt, you have kept on moving forward. You have kept on putting one foot in front of the other. And I think that's where a lot of people fall short because they don't. They they stay paralyzed by that fear. But you're like, that, excuse my language, I'm going to keep moving forward anyway. So I love that so much. And I think that's how we get to where we want to be because we're not exempt from fears and anxieties. We all have these things. And there's so many things that I want to pick your brain on today. But I thought a really great place to start, and this follows on perfectly, is mindset. Specifically, like this CEO mindset that you have. And it's not just about the CEO mindset in your business, but I feel like you and Alex have a CEO mindset in all areas of your life. I feel like that's just like you take that into your relationships, into your health. So you yourself are an incredible CEO and you work with lots of other CEOs in your acquisitions process. So what have you noticed are the most common traits of a CEO? You know, it's an interesting question because I think the traits of the title is so conflated, like what it means in one company is so different in another company. But I think if you're to say like the internal leader of the company, then I think, you know, I go back to, um, I don't know if you know who John Wooden is, but he was like a very well-known coach in basketball. And he had this pyramid and I found it like six years ago. It's called the Pyramid of Success. And on that pyramid, there were two cornerstones to being a successful teammate. And I consider that pyramid to be the foundation for what creates a successful CEO as well. And the two foundational pieces are industriousness and enthusiasm. And I still, to this day, when we're evaluating CEOs, like those are two things I look for. I'm like, can this person work hard and not just work hard activity-wise, but work hard on the right things at the right time while maintaining an attitude of enthusiasm? And I think that like, to be frank, like I always have been able to work hard, not always on the right things. Over time, I've learned the right things. But that was the muscle that probably came more naturally to me. What was always so hard for me was the enthusiasm piece. And I realized that it actually stemmed from the fact that typically what happens is you work really hard and you, you work very hard because you're using like stress in a way. And so for me, I had to learn how to manage that and act despite feeling stressed and treat people in a different way despite feeling stressed to show up enthusiastically for my team, despite feeling stressed, in order to embody both of those values. Because when I first found that pyramid six years ago, I was like, oh, shit, like I'm overcompensating on the work hard. Like everyone on the team is like, you are a machine. 
But nobody was like, oh my gosh, you have like, you're amazing and smiling all the time and like excited. Like I was never not nice, but I wasn't excited and enthusiastic about the work I was doing. And so I think that when I look for CEOs in our portfolio, those are the two things I look for. You know, can they work hard, work their butt off, work on the right things and also show up with a smile every day? You know, I think those things matter. And I'll be honest, like there are a lot of organizations where you don't need those things. But I don't look at the job of the CEO as, oh, the only thing to do is like drive business performance. I look at it as like, you are a leader in your community, in society. Like, what is the standard you're setting for leadership? You as the sole person of this company can make everybody's lives here better or worse. And so that's what I ask myself every day is like, the way that you're showing up today, are you making people's lives better or worse by the way that you walk into the office, by the way that you're talking to people today? And I think that that is a level of like awareness and responsibility that I do think I would say the best CEOs that our leaders have. And it's what I look for in the, you know, the companies we invest in. Mm, Absolutely. So it's like about, despite what's going on in your personal life, despite how stressed you're feeling, can we still show up with a smile on our face? Yeah. When we behave in a way that, reinforces our thoughts and feelings, they grow. And I don't think people get this. Like this is, it's science. like, if you act depressed, you will feel more depressed because, and so it's being able, like what I have had to understand is that I can have a thought and I cannot act on it. I can have a feeling and I cannot act on it. If I have a thought or if I have a feeling and I act on it, that is where it goes wrong. I can have an irrational thought or an irrational fear. If I don't take action on it, nothing happens. And then what happens eventually is I don't have that thought anymore. If I have a thought or a fear or a feeling, right, and then I act on it, I get more of those thoughts. That's how the brain works. And so, you know, for me, if I have daily stressors that are popping up, which in business, I think you get new ones left and right, and I'm constantly acting on them, I would just turn into a paranoid freak. You know what I mean? And I think at one point in my early career, like I was almost to a degree because I was, I was like, I got to, you know, block and tackle, like make sure nothing kills the company, right? And what I realized was I was just reinforcing this fear-mongering mindset by taking action on those fearful thoughts. It is uncomfortable in the moment to say, you know what, I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to acknowledge it's there. Thank you so much for warning me that maybe my business will burn down tomorrow, but I'm going to go ahead and go have my day anyways. And eventually the thought goes away, you know? But I think what happens is a lot of leaders, and I, gosh, I've seen it so many times that it sucks to see because it's really hard to get this concept across. I'm probably not the best teacher yet, is that so many people allow their minds to rule them and they allow those thoughts of fear, they believe them. They think it's a thought, therefore it could be real. Maybe they treat it almost like the thought is a fact and then they act upon it. And then they're constantly in this cycle of anxiety and that does not make for a good workplace. It doesn't make for a good team culture. It doesn't make for a fun time. And so it's funny because I think a lot of people, this mentality and the re- like acting on our thoughts and emotions like they are facts and directives has led to so many people hating work, you know, because they are in this environment where it's perpetually fueled by anxiety and stress and fear. And I genuinely really love work. And I think people often see me and Alex and they think, gosh, you know, they must be miserable working all the time, like robots. I'm like, oh my God, I'm here. Like, I love what I do. 
I genuinely don't feel like a ball of stress every day. There are days when I'm stressed, yes, but I have very, like a wide range of stress management skills now. Like I actually really do enjoy working. And I wish that for everybody. But I think that the only way that you can get there is if you learn how to manage that and you break the link between thought to action. You know, just because you think it doesn't mean you need to do anything about it. And oftentimes in business, especially when the leader of the business, every single anxiety and fear they have, they need to start a new initiative, build a new thing, hire a new person, change direction. It's like, well, you end up just spinning in circles. And so I think that the root of, you know, a lot of great leadership is somebody who can manage their own mind first. Because if you can't manage your own mind, you're definitely not going to be able to manage a business. Yeah, that's such a good point. The way that you manage your mind, is it simply about awareness? Is it simply about catching the thought and then acknowledging it? Is that your process? I would say I practice a lot of like thought diffusion. I've probably studied every single type of, it sounds crazy to say a lot, but like every single kind of therapy that exists. I've studied it. I've read a book on it. I've gone deep on it to understand because I've wanted the tools for myself. And I think especially like as our company grew and we gained notoriety and things like that, I also felt like, you know, I don't really feel like telling anybody anything on my own. If I'm being completely frank, I had incidents in the past where it didn't go well. And so I'm like, you know, I really should learn these skills myself. And I found so much of a sense of power in that because learning how to manage your own mind and walk yourself through a framework when you're feeling off has been the most valuable thing I could do for myself. And what it feels like is it, like when people say self-care and they think of a bubble bath, like I think of like me therapizing myself as my self-care. That is for me, like learning how to diffuse thoughts, learning how to practice acceptance, learning how to decipher between an irrational thought and a rational one. Like those are all things that I would say I study consistently and on a daily basis practice, you know, in the morning, I would say is like when my brain is the most wild. And so I go on a walk and oftentimes like anxious thoughts will pop up. And the first thing I do is just practice thought diffusion, whether it be picturing those thoughts as I do like leaves in a river, or it could be questioning the thoughts and trying to accumulate evidence to build up like, is it real? Is it not? I just pick whatever's going to work for me. And like, don't get me wrong, there's some days where it feels like you throw everything against your mind and it doesn't work, right? And in those days, I just remind myself, it's always tomorrow. <laughs> but for the most part, it helps me a lot. And I think doing that in the morning, being mindful before I go into the rest of my day. And I always set little goals for myself based on kind of how I start my day. It's like, okay, well, if this is how I'm feeling. Then like my goal is to carry on despite this stress, despite this thing, despite this like maybe impending problem in the business that's stressing me out. I want to do something about it, right? And I'm like, okay, my goal is just to get through the day without giving it any more attention. I'll acknowledge the thought when it comes up. I'm not going to do anything about it. And I think that for me, that's helped a lot because I think a lot of people in business go around solving imaginary problems. And in the beginning of my business career, I think I did that more. And now I think I'm able to say, oh, wow, that's, a, that's an interesting thought. That's pretty scary. Yeah, that's pretty stressful. Um, but you know what? I'm not going to do anything about that. Like that's out of my control. It can live in my head and I can also not bring it into reality. Yeah, I love that. So inspiring because so many people deal with this. So thank you for sharing that. Now you cannot manage a billion dollar portfolio without a great team. And I know that's something that you really pride yourself on. I've heard you talk about this so much, like 
relationships, team building, and team culture. And you clearly have assembled a group of people around you who are incredibly committed to your vision and your mission. So I would love to know, what do you do differently that other people don't do when they're hiring? What are some unexpected qualities that you look for? Like, do you have any sneaky tricks up your sleeves to help us find and hire our dream team members? And where do you hire? Like, do you go to LinkedIn or socials or emails? Because something that I hear a lot of is, oh, there's no one good out there, or I may as well just do it myself because I can't find anyone as good as me. So I would love your thoughts on this. Yeah. I think that if you're trying to build, say, like a leadership team, because I think that's probably if you're if you're trying to build a business, it's like assembling the leaders around you and the people to help you make it happen. I think that the way that you recruit, I think what most people want when they see how I work with my team is they want autonomous people, people who can make decisions, they can take action, they don't need to be told exactly what to do. And I don't think that what people understand is that you train people to do that by the way that you even introduce them to the company. More companies than not that exist on this earth just want people to do what they're told. And if you want to reverse that behavior, then I would say like, okay, well, how, if I wanted to micromanage somebody, how would I hire them? You know, what would I ask in the interview process? And I would probably ask like, what time do you get to work? What do you do after work? You know, like, how do you act in these situations when you disagree with me? It's just like, I'd be looking for someone who agrees with me all the time, needs me to tell them what to do, wants a ton of direction, wants rules to follow. And so if I wanted to attract people who would like the opposite of that, then I would do the opposite, which is like, ask people questions to understand, can they make decisions on their own? Do they want to make decisions on their own? I would ask them questions rather than me being the one drilling them the entire time. I would probably conduct the interview differently, which is, I'll be honest, like I'd, I'm not, you know, people are like, what are your favorite interview questions? And I actually regret that I've given them to people because I'm like, my interviews are not like that. Like it is a, it's a, truly a conversation. It's not me interrogating somebody. And I think that that is so much more productive because if I want somebody who is how I view a leader in my company, which is a partner in growing the company with me, they are one of my partners then I'm going to talk to them like a partner. I'm not going to talk to them like somebody who's my minion. I'm going to ask them, what do you think we should do here? Here's something I'm struggling with. Like, can I get your take on this? And I think that it's being approached from a much more collaborative standpoint rather than condemning standpoint. And so I think it starts with the questions that you ask people and even the way that you go about the interview process. You know, I think that if you're trying to get top talent, then who's the first person that they're interviewing with? You know, I, when I'm recruiting for C-level talent, like I'm probably going to be on two interviews, maybe the first one and maybe the last one, because I think it's really important that just as a candidate tries to impress somebody, like you have to show up to show the candidates that you're committed to them. You know, and I think that a lot of people, the best people that I've ever hired, want to see how committed I am to the company succeeding. And part of that is how involved am I in this interview process, in this hiring process? Will I take a call at 7 p.m. when they have questions about the job? Will I hop on a, a third call with them? Will I, you know, go to lunch with them and their spouse? I mean, like, it's going the extra mile for them because you're never going to get that from people if you don't, if it's not, it's going to be reciprocated. It's not that they're going to bring it first. And so I think it's truly showing them with your behavior what you want from them in the company. And I think that most people follow that. 
The issue is that it also takes time. You know, a lot of people, I think most people want autonomy, but most people at work are punished for being autonomous. Like in a big corporate setting, in a, you know, you're working at one of like the top PE firms even. I mean, like I've interviewed many very capable, much smarter than me people with way more experience. And they are terrified to do anything, it's clear, even in the interview process, that would be against what I would want. Terrified to contradict me because they've been taught by this other company that that's not acceptable. And so I think that it also requires patience and to be a good teacher because I think that many times, I think as like the CEO of a company, we think about like teaching our clients or our customers or our audience, whatever it may be. But the first person that you have to teach are the ones closest to you, and it's your team. And I think a lot of it is undoing behavior and, that they had from their past jobs by teaching them the new behavior you do want. And I do that with everybody by rewarding and reinforcing the behavior I like and then extinguishing the behavior I don't like or providing them with different directives. And I don't punish people. I don't condemn people. I don't yell at people. Like, I mean, I'd be happy if anyone asks anyone on my team because it's just true. Like, I never once have used that to change someone's behavior. It's all reinforcement. And I think that at the end of the day, if you want people who are top talent, like even think about yourself, would you ever work for somebody who yelled at you? Never. Never. And the thing is, is that you don't even need to have them yell at you. But would you work for someone who just constantly yelled because they're just angry? It's like, no. And so I think that a lot of the times when we're trying to find really great people to work with, we have to think it's often the opposite of many traditional hiring practices because if you think about the widest use of hiring, the most amount of jobs available on this earth are not going to be leadership level positions. And so we have to think of a different way to hire rather than that, that's often shared because when you're hiring for a leader, you have to think, what would I want in this job? You know, would I work for myself if I were this person? And I think that was probably really long-winded. I don't know. It's just when you have really talented people, I don't think that there's a way that you can attract them if you don't allow for true autonomy in the company. And they can feel that from the first interview that you have with them. Yeah, I'm just like reflecting on people that I've hired and I so desperately want them to be autonomous and like take initiative and come to me with solutions and ideas and options if there is an issue. And literally, I'm just thinking back, there's been times where they've been paralyzed to do that. And now you have shown me, I'm like, that's been their conditioning. And it's my role to help coach that out of them so that they can become more autonomous and trust themselves and to step into that power within themselves. So yeah, it's so important that we do that. A hundred percent. They are reacting to you due to what their last boss did. Their last boss punished them for their idea. Therefore, they're scared to give you their idea today. It doesn't have to do with you. It has to do with their last person. Yes, yes, yes. Like so many light bulbs. I love that. Anything else with hiring that we should think about or any other little tips or tricks? I don't think the tips and tricks matter as much as brand and reputation. Like everyone asks me, and it's funny, I'll get into an interview, uh, like a, even, even a podcast, and they'll be like, tell me how to hire. I'm like, it honestly is reputation. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, because acquisition.com, we actually also do 
recruiting for our portfolio companies. And the reason that we do that is because of our reputation. In the beginning, I would have them have their recruiting arms and then I would, we would work through that to like, you know, help them make sure they got the right people. And I was like, gosh, I just can't get the right kind of candidates I need in here. And so then I said, you know what? I think we've got to build it at Holdco and do the recruiting through our own brand. And I would never go back. I think that, you know, one thing that I didn't do in my last couple of companies was, you know, really focus on building a brand. And when I say building a brand, I actually just mean, I always think about it in this way. For some reason, I think about it of just like taking what's on the inside and revealing it to the outside. You know, it's just like capturing the stuff we do inside the company and showing it to other people on the outside, to the audience. And I think that if people did more of that, they would have an easier time attracting talent. Since I started making content, like the quality of candidates that I'm that I I get. And when I say quality, I mean that they share my values. They will have the skill is not even a question, but I have all these people who they share my values. And I think that for people who are trying to attract really great people to help them build their vision, put your values out there. Show everybody like how the inside of the company is, make it visible to the audience. It will make everything easier. Like you can be thing is, it's like a good product. If you get a really good product, you don't need to market, right? Like if you have a really good reputation, you don't need to have the best, most dialed process possible. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have both, but if I had to start with one, I would say reputation and brand. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Now, speaking of content, you were talking about when you started making content. I want to just sidestep for a moment because you are one of my favorite follows on Instagram right now, along with Alex. I love watching everything that you guys post. You are both known for consistently delivering extremely high quality content at a really high frequency. So how do you approach your content creation and what are your tips for creating such epic content all the time? I like look at Jason. I'm like, I don't know. What do we do? (laughs) You know, here's the thing is that I think what I did in the beginning versus what I do now are very different. You know, in the beginning, it was like, this sounds very simple, but this is what it was. It was like, you make three YouTube videos a month or four. Yeah, I made four a month and I filmed them all on one day every month and I scripted them myself. And then once a quarter, I filmed a hundred shorts in a day. And then that was all we did. And as we wanted different kinds of content, different variety, and probably just a different approach because that was when we didn't really have a business. Then we said, I went to Caleb, who's our director of brand, and I said, I think I need to change how I make content. And so we've switched to really having it captured for us. The reason I don't think how we make content is relative for people is because we have a team of 15 people making content. <laughs> you know, like we have people that are not just flying in to do recording days for YouTube, where we have like a team of four people there that are, they've scripted it, they've picked the topic, they've scripted it, they run it by us, we've gotten props, we have a studio set up, and then we film it for a day, and then there's all the editing. But then on the other side, you know, we have an entire team of shorts editors, people making posts for Instagram or Twitter and and LinkedIn. And then on that side, I think that we've switched a little bit more to capturing, whereas like, you know, doing podcasts where you can take clips from recording us as we just like live our lives. Maybe we're going to an event, maybe we're throwing an event, whatever it is, like recording the things we do on a daily basis. But you know, the thing is, is like that is hard. 
You know, like as we've made the switch, it's a tough switch. You know, it's hard to capture because like, what if I say nothing good on this podcast? You know what I mean? Like, what if it's just all like, because there's a difference between saying things that sound like if somebody knows me, they might be like, oh, that was a really great podcast. But somebody doesn't know me. There was no zinger. There was no great metaphor. There was no click that they got. And I think that the best content seems to almost like shift your frame in a way. It's like, it gets your attention and then it provides you with a relevant example to the idea it's trying to get across. And then it closes the loop by shifting your frame. So it's like, you know, Alex has the framework of like hook, retain, reward. It's like it hooks you, it retains you by giving you a relevant example of something else that would maybe like bridge the gap between the idea. Because if you're presenting a new idea to somebody, you need to use an old existing idea to use as like, it's like this, you know. And then at the end, you reward people by giving them a framework, a frame shift, a sentence that might make them question a belief or a way of doing things. And so I think that that's, if, if I were starting off making content, I would use that frame all day and I would probably pre-record content. You know, the only like people that our way of doing it makes sense for are people who are like have large, large businesses at this point. So, you know, at this point, like for me, like I continue to make content because I'm not doing any of it. Like they're capturing what I'm doing. I show up to two YouTube days a month and then we do what we call like vlog days, which we're getting rid of the term vlog. But like, where they just take me for, for all day and they just see if they can catch anything. That's it. And like some days we catch nothing and it's awful. We feel like crap. I'm looking at Jason. Like, we know we were talking about the other day. We're like, oh my God, like two days in a row, you get nothing, right? But then there's like a third day where you get a ton. And so I think my point to this is it's not perfect at all. I 1000% think if I even just spent like Half the time I think about Alex's brand to think about mine, because like I, you know, I kind of oversee both. Gosh, I'm like, wow, I could really grow this thing, but I don't. And and it's not a priority. And it is a lot of time and a lot of resources to try and make it in a way so that it is something that's happening while I'm just doing my job rather than a separate job, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And what do you see as some of the common mistakes? I, I don't really like that word, but like that other people are doing in content creation. Do you see any? Yeah. Everyone's just copying everybody. You know, and even for me, it's like, you know, people send me videos and like, I mean, I've had people script my videos word for word and remake them just to try and get views, you know? And I think for the most part, it's it's trying to get views, not trying to make a brand. And if you want to get views, you know, I'm like, go for it. But like, if you want to build a brand, there is a balance between reach and depth. And I think a lot of people, it is hard to build a true brand. And I think it is, for most people, slow in the beginning. Like most people aren't like Alex, where he had eight years of camera experience prior to making content, of of experience making ads and VSLs and webinars. Like he had all that experience, which translated very easily into content. Most people don't have that. And so it is slow, it is hard, and it can be discouraging at times. And so I think what most people do is they sacrifice their values, how they want to be seen for views. They are like, let me hop on the latest trend. Let me make that video like that one girl. I'm going to remake this thing. And unless you want to be a true content creator and have that as your full-time thing and do affiliations and all that, I don't see how that benefits you. You know, like if the goal is reach because you're going to use a discount code for this bar that you're, you know, whatever, shilling off, then like, cool, like, that's what you're going to do. You're going to do that. And I get it. You're going to hop on trends. But if you're like, 
trying to build a brand to get reach for your business, to get more customers, how is you dancing on TikTok as a lawyer going to get you more customers? I would look at that and be like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? And so I think it's, it's misalignment. It's doing things to appease others, doing things because we want the views, not because they're authentic to who we are. And that, I think, is the crux of so much of the issues I see in content is like, people might have a large following, but you meet them in person, they're completely different. They're like, oh, I hate all that content. It's so gross. I'm like, why are you making it? <laughs> you know, like, why? And so I think that most people sacrifice their brand because they are too impatient to truly let it grow on the time horizon it would. And they sacrifice it then for the short-term views, which then deter them from building a brand in the long term. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I had someone say to me the other day that it's confusing. They're like, I don't even know what I stand for anymore because I'm trying to build on social and I'm following the trends and I feel confused and I don't actually even know what I stand for and what my brand is because there's so much noise. Have you heard that? Yeah. And I think they should unfollow everybody. Like, what is content that you would want to consume? Like, what do you want to hear in the world? You know, like when I built, when we built our first business, it wasn't like, oh my God, what's the trend? What's the market? What's this? It was literally like we understood the market to the degree that we're like, gosh, I wish this existed. I wish there was a business like this. You know, screw it, we'll build it. So it's like, what is content that you want to hear? And like, for me, I have, pivoted my content because I, the beginning of it, it wasn't what I wanted to hear. And then I realized like what I want to hear is somebody who is actually like not saying they're authentically themselves, but like literally showing up like imperfectly on all of the things in a position where I think people expect the opposite. And I've wanted that is somebody who is, has evidence of their success, but doesn't show up like a robot and actually talks about their failures past and present. And that is what I've always wanted in in somebody to look up to, in content to watch. And so that's what I'm trying to get across in my message. You know, not always succeeding, but sometimes succeeding and trying to get better at it. And so I think if you have that focus, like what content do I want? What content is missing for me? Could I be the one to make that content? Then I think that's a really inspiring North Star for people. But I think that we get so clouded in that so many people just sit there and scroll Instagram all day and they're like, they're watching everybody else. And I tell people, I'm like, go look at the people I follow. I don't follow that many people. And I, you know what I do with the rest of them? I have 150 of the 200 muted, not because I don't like them, but because I just don't have a desire to watch other people's content because I don't want that to be my frame for which how I make content myself. And I think that at the end of the day, if you make good shit, people will watch it. The algorithm doesn't matter. And so to everybody who's like, oh, the algorithm, I'm like, okay, well, Everybody was losing followers on Instagram when I gained 100,000. So I'm like, okay, I don't even know anything about this fucking algorithm. And I gained 100,000 that quarter. And like, it wasn't doing anything. It was just like, hey, let's make better shit, you know? Yeah, more authentic. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard Alex say so many times, he's like, it's not about making short content. It's not about the algorithm. He's like, your content sucks. And it's true. It's like, yeah. You need to pivot and do what feels more authentic for you. But something else that a lot of people struggle with is 
Do I have to share everything? To be authentic, do I have to share every single personal thing that's going on in my life? I think to each their own, you know what I mean? But I think there's oversharing, which is almost the same as I would say would be like oversharing to my team, which is like, I can tell my team I'm upset, I'm stressed today, so that if they can sense that I'm stressed or upset, they know it's not about them. But if I show up to the office sobbing, telling them I'm stressed and upset, I find that to be oversharing on my behalf, you know? Like, I think that that is not appropriate for the environment. And so it is a question of like, what is the environment that you're trying to create on your social media? There's no right or wrong. There's somebody for everybody. Like, I doubt many people that follow my page want to watch me cry on Instagram. But there are plenty of people who would be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Are you okay when somebody's crying on Instagram? And so I think it's determining like, what do you want for yourself? And just like, who are you? Like, what do you share authentically? You know, I tend to share a, a, a lot. Like, I don't feel like I have a lot of secrets, but I don't ever share in an emotional state. And I don't even do that with my own freaking husband. You know, I don't put my emotions on other people because I don't see the benefit. And so I think some people might interpret that as inauthentic. I interpret that as being polite. <laughs> like, that is who Layla is. Layla just doesn't share, like, I'm not going to go emotionally vomit on people. Like, that's just not who I am. And it's just truly, I don't see the benefit. So I think it's really figuring out, like, who are you really? Like, what do you like sharing? I don't think there's a right or wrong. I think that when you're building a brand, though, the question you have to ask yourself, if you're like, should I share this? Should I not? Am I going to gain more than I lose? So every time, if you're trying to grow a brand, it's a matter of trading up. You will always lose some of an audience when you do something different, when you share something new. But the question is, have you done the math? Will you gain more? And I think that, you know, for example, like I had my plastic surgery and I thought to myself, well, I, you know, it was like coming up to it. I was like, oh, that's going to be noticeable. How am I going to deal with that on social media? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to just completely share everything. and. I think that for the people who really vibe with me, they will like that. And I will actually grow more of an affinity, especially from female followers. And you know what happened? Like my female following has like tripled because I actually have like a primarily male following. And I was like, you know what? Even if I lose some of the men that are following me, I would really like to have more of a female audience. And so that decision for me, I think was a good one, like a net gain, because in sharing that, I gained more of the people I wanted. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And it comes back to always like tuning in and doing what feels right for you and sharing what feels right for you. And for me, it's like there's parts of my life I don't share. Like I have a two and a half year old and I choose not to share her face on social media. And that just feels true for me. And it might change. Like in a year, I might be like, I want to share her now. But right now for me in my life, not sharing her just feels true for me. But there's also this inner battle that I have because that is such a huge part of my life. And it's such a huge part of my life that I'm so proud of and love so much. So some days I'm like, I've just been in mum mode all day, finger painting and baking and having the best time ever. I don't have anything to say about business or anything like that online. So it's like this, this inner dance that I sometimes deal with. But at the end of the day, I always come back to 
what feels right and true for me. And it's to not share that part of my life. And that is probably because sharing it wouldn't be conducive to your goals as well. You don't need to share it to reach the goals that you have. You know, for example, like I have friends who are very famous and they've said to me, they're like, if you ever, like if you and Alex, like we want to go A-list celebrity, they're like, privacy is a privilege and you will not have that anymore. And they were like, and I don't need that privilege. They're like, it is a privilege and I don't have it. And I think that most people are not trying to do that. They're trying to reach a certain amount of people, have a certain amount of impact, not be the next, you know, whatever. Gosh, I don't even know. I'm trying to think of this. Like J-Lo or Beyonce or Logan Paul or whatever. You know what I mean? In which case, those instances, your secrets get used against you. Therefore, it makes sense to air things. Yes. Yes. So true. My husband and I are watching the David Beckham series at the moment. Have you watched it? No, I don't actually know what it is. On Netflix, he's shared this four-part docu-series on his life. And uh, yeah, just the level of celebrity that him and Victoria have and what they've been through, it's just another level, another level. And the way that the media just turns on them and things like that. So yeah, I was just thinking of that when you said that. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, nobody wants to read about a happy ending. Everyone wants to read about the teardown. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Now, being in a high-profile relationship, it must come with its own set of challenges. So how do you and Alex handle the fact that millions of different people comment on your stuff, they share their opinion on your personal and professional life? Like, how do you disengage and not take that on? You know, what's interesting is actually, I think that it's just a level of understanding in that I think most of the time when people make comments that bother people, it's because there's an element of truth. Or given that person's perspective and life experiences, that would make sense for them to have those conclusions. And so, you know, for myself, I think things I've dealt with and continue to deal with are people continue to not understand that I, like what my position is in the company. And I think that's because Alex is very elevated online and his presence and his social media and just in general, like who he is, his presence. And I am a very, I have a very different demeanor to me. I'm also a woman. I don't like to take a lot of credit. <laughs> and so the way that I come across, you know, a lot of people might think, oh, Layla only married him for the money. Like she came in and took everything from him. Like she's taking the credit. She doesn't even do anything. You know, I see those things. We see stuff they say about our marriage. People say stuff about my voice. I mean, like I see so many things people say, but I don't blame them for thinking any of those. Like, I don't, like, I get it. Like, it's like, I, I don't know. I, like, it's like, I'll read the meanest comment. I'm like, I get it. <laughs> and I think a lot of people fight it. You know, they're like, and I did for a while, honestly. You know, I used to fight those comments and think like, you, I can't believe you'd say this, all these things, because I didn't want to accept that there are multiple realities and mar multiple truths in this world. And many of which, in some situations, those things would be true. And they have been true for those people that comment. Situations similar to ours have been true in the past from whatever they comment in a negative way. And so they think it might be true now. What they're saying has happened before, therefore they think it will happen again in a situation that has similar characteristics. Why would I blame them for that? And so I think for me, it's helped me emotionally regulate myself to the extent that like, I really don't, the comments, even from like three months ago, I mean, like they didn't, like they barely bothered me then, but like now I feel like, 
it's not even that they don't bother me. It's that I understand them. When people say negative things, I'm like, I can see why if you had this worldview, that would be what you thought. It can still, every once in a while, catch me on a day and piss me off. I've just realized also, one, it's just like a thought. You know, I have the thought, oh, what a dick. You said this thing. You're such a mean person, blah, blah, blah. Well, I reinforce that thought by acting on it. And so if I want to think about all the mean things people say, then I should act on the mean things they say. But I don't. I read them and then I go on with my day. And then the thoughts go less and less. I, th- I don't think about the mean things people say. I read them and I'm like, oh, wow, that's a new one. And then, <laughs> and then I go on and have my day, you know? And so I think it's really appropriate from that standpoint. Like I would say to anybody who's trying to grow a following and they're having a hard time because there's all these negative comments, like, can you not see that there's some truth to that? Can you not picture a world in which like that perspective makes sense? Can you not imagine a life that somebody has had that would lead them to believe these conclusions are true about you? And I think that once you really think through what people must be thinking in their head, what they must have experienced in their life, you can imagine why they say the things they do. And you, what, it, what that allows you to do is not take it so personal because it's not about you. They don't care who you are. They don't follow you. They're not even watching your content. It's just seeing a 60-second clip of you on the internet and they're making a conclusion based off past experiences. It has nothing to do with you. And I truly believe that. And does that mean that I'm like rooting for these people that are trying to, you know, be whatever? I'm like, I actually just feel neutral. I'm just like, oh gosh, that's terrible that that's been your life experience, but gosh, I'm glad it's not mine. Mm, Absolutely. I love that perspective shift. It's really powerful because we can get so caught up in the spiral of why and da 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 and why are they saying that about me? When you try to think why, it's an, it's a never, most people don't even know why themselves. You know what I mean? Like seriously, most people can't tell you their own why. They don't even know why they do things. So for us to try and figure it out is like never going to work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about imposter syndrome. Is that something that you still grapple with? You know, that's an interesting one because I think a lot of people have asked me about that. and. I'll give you my perspective and if it's useful or not. I don't like the term because I think that the word syndrome makes it sound like a true like mental issue or a, a impairment. So I don't like that term. I think that if you go to the root of what it is, it's having high levels of self-doubt, feeling like you're not capable to accomplish a task or that you are not equipped for the situation you're in. And I think that for people who are constantly trying to do new things or in situations that they haven't been in before, it makes sense that they feel doubtful. And so it's really funny to me that this is a problem because even today, you know, running acquisition.com, I have so much self-doubt, but I don't look at it as a problem. I think that doubt and confidence can exist simultaneously. You don't need to act like a scared little chihuahua just because you have self-doubt. You can still take actions like somebody who is certain and confident. But that doesn't mean that the voices in your head of like, oh gosh, what if you're not equipped for this? What if you can't do this? What if you should be somebody else? What if you're never going to succeed? It doesn't mean those things aren't there. It just means that you don't act on them. And so I think that for me, one, it's really contextualizing the situation. Like, does it make sense that you doubt yourself right now? Have you ever been in this exact situation before? If the answer is no, why do you have, your brain has no evidence to support that you can do the thing. 
But that should lead to the next thought, which is like, well, damn, let's let's prove myself wrong. Like, let's go do the thing and build some evidence. So the next time I'm in this situation, I'm like, yeah, we can fucking do it. But I think that most people don't get past that. And they're like, Layla, how do I do anything? I just have imposter syndrome. I'm like, well, of course, you've never done it before. What do you expect? You know, it's not a syndrome. It's just self-doubt. And those feelings can feel very overwhelming. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't pursue the thing you're doing. It means probably you have a lack of skills. You need to acquire a decent amount of skills to be good at the thing that you're going to do. It's going to take some time. It's going to be hard. You're going to doubt yourselves. Then one day you're going to feel better. And then you doubt yourself again. Then you feel better again. But you'll get there if you don't stop. And I think that oftentimes people catastrophize it. They turn it into this thing that needs to be solved rather than just a dichotomy of life that you manage. I love that perspective shift. Of course you have self-doubt. You've never done it before. Of course. Like, it's all good. Prove yourself wrong. Show yourself that you can do it anyway. I love that so much because, yeah, I've definitely, definitely sat in that, oh, but yeah, I feel like an imposter. I've sat in that before and I've, I've let it stop me or I've let it hold me back or take longer to take action when as soon as it comes up, I can just go, yeah, of course, I've never done this before. That's why I have the self-doubt and it feels scary and it feels big and I feel anxious and fear. I'm going to keep moving forward anyway. I think the faster that we can make that space between our thought and our action quicker and quicker and quicker, instead of sitting in it, the shorter we can make that, the faster we're going to get to where we want to be. Yeah. For people who are overthinking, you don't need to think yourself out of self-doubt. You need to act yourself out of it by building evidence so that the next time that you're in the situation, you know you can do it. But the funny thing about that is you'll never be in that situation again. So you'll always have some level of doubt. And I think that that's also healthy. And that's how, that's how we acquire new skills. We say, oh my gosh, I'm not good at this thing. Let me go learn. I mean, like if we didn't have doubt, we wouldn't have skills. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's what inspires you to grow to the next level, to learn that skill. And then you get there and then another one might come up and then you learn the next thing. So I love that perspective shift. It's really powerful. If you had a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world, what book would you choose? And I have a feeling you'll say all of Alex's, but Let's put them all of in, in there because they are incredible. So we've got Alex's books in the curriculum. What is one other book you would choose? It could be on mindset. It could be on business. It could be on anything you choose. So tough because it's not published yet. My good friend, Dr. Cashy, who's Alex's editor, has a book that he's written called The New Science of Self-Discipline. And I think that's the book that everybody needs because... He has just changed my life in terms of his teaching and everything he's taught me. And I wish that I could relay his insights in a way that would do them justice because most of what I learn is vicariously through him in some ways. And I just apply it to leadership and business. But yeah, it would be his book. Now, if I had to pick one that was already published, put it out into the world, gosh, it's tough. You know, I would say that it's not going to be a crazy business book, or even a book that I, I'll say this, I think that most books to gain reach and to help more people dilute the content. So it's actually not factually correct, but it will help more people because it's written in a way that is appealing to 
masses. And I actually think that at a level, if I had to put a book in a school, I would be engineering it more for that. So I'd probably say something like, like Tony Robbins, Unleash the Power Within. You know, that book, I think is a fantastic book for somebody who's not made changes in their life. They're looking to make changes and they don't know where to start. Like, and it's proven to work for a lot of people. I thought you were going to say you're writing a book. Are you? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) One day, maybe one day. I know. You know, it's honestly, the process just seems terrible. (laughs) It's a lot. I have five books out. Yeah, that's very impressive. I'm 100% procrastinating and just hoping that people just stop asking. (laughs) It's a lot of work, but I mean, you've seen Alex do it and it's very rewarding as well. Rewarding, but you know, I wouldn't be able to run the company. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Yeah, because he was working on it for about two years, the latest one, wasn't he? Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, he usually doesn't have much on his calendar, you know, versus like, how would I write six to seven to eight hours a day and then do the other eight? Like, it's just, I don't think it makes sense right now. I don't have a strong desire at this point. I think that I'm going to in the future. And then I see in five to 10 years, the book I want to write, but I need to build the story first. Yeah, totally agree. So many people now that I have a two and a half year old, people are like, what's your next book? And I'm like, I don't have the space right now. I have a toddler. Like, I'm either working or I'm mumming. And yeah, all of my other books I wrote before she was here. So I had five hours to write in a day. Well, I mean, I definitely could, but I don't want to spend that time away from her right now. So we all have books in us and I can't wait for yours to one day come out. So tell me about your day. I love hearing about how people prime themselves for the day? What little rituals and routines do you have? Can you talk us through a quote unquote typical day in your life? Now I have seen the post that you posted on Twitter of your calendar. So I've seen it and I was like, wow, babe, you're amazing. Talk us through for someone who hasn't seen your calendar, a quote unquote typical day for you. Yeah. You know, I think it changes a lot. Like I'll I'll just be honest, you know, we just got this office two weeks ago. And so now we have like a headquarters and now I've just realized like my entire life has changed. And I have to change a lot of things. You know, my whole routine is different. Me and Alex were like, how do we spend time together? Because we actually wake up and work at different times. And now it's like, oh my gosh, you used to be in the same house. You see each other at lunch. Now we don't. And so I think there's a lot that I'm trying to figure out right now. But what I've done is that I don't have a sequence in which I do things during my day. I like to remain flexible with what timing those things will have. But I have things that I like to do every day that I think are important to me and that I prefer to do to, you know, whatever, manage myself or, you know, achieve my goals, right? Like I want to build this company. I want to pour into the team. I also want to stay in shape. I also want to have a good marriage. I also like to have friends and friendships, but I also really like doing business. And so for me, it's probably throughout the day and the week, different things. Like if I had to have my perfect day, I'll, I'll start with that. I would wake up, and I would work for two to three hours uninterrupted. And then I would go on a walk. And after that walk, I would do my hair and makeup. And I would come to the office. And then I would have meetings with the people on my team. I would get a little bit of free time in between the meetings to like hang out with people in the office and have, you know, whatever, coffee, talk, eat something. Then I would leave work, go to the gym, lift and then hang out and have dinner with Alex or Alex and friends. That would be like an ideal day for me. 
And also just to caveat, like that time when I go walk in the morning, that's when I listen to an audiobook. I like practice thought diffusion, like whatever it might be. That's when I'm also trying to, you know, just like take care of myself or work on anything that I feel like is my focus at that point. And then when I get home, like I ain't trying to think about shit. So like after dinner, I go home, I take a shower and then I'm like in bed and probably like right now watching Sex in the City. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. It's so beautiful to hear. And I noticed in your calendar, you guys do, you have a lot of dinners with friends and obviously business colleagues and things like that. It's really beautiful. And that's something that's a big core value of mine as well is my friendships, my relationships. It's so important because they are just what light me up so much. So it's really important that we invest time and love and energy into those relationships. A hundred percent. And I think for me, a lot of people I see, you know, they comment and they say like, oh, you guys don't even have friends. Oh, I have, we have plenty of friends, but we don't share it on social media. <laughs> but I feel like I see you guys out to dinner and dessert every night with someone else. Yeah, I think, well, I think a lot of times we're also with our team or we're with colleagues. But, you know, I think it's, it's one of those things where, I don't know, that's probably one thing that I don't like sharing as much. It's like, I'll share here and there, like doing stuff with friends. But usually when I'm with friends, like, I don't want to be thinking about like Instagramming it or sharing it or like, then it's, you know, I don't know. I hear you. I hear you. Okay. I've got three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Okay. What is one thing that we can do today for our health? Only eat when you are actually hungry, not when you're bored or stressed, sad or frustrated. Be okay with feeling hungry and not eating because most people don't know what real hunger is. Yeah, totally. What is one thing that we can do for our wealth today? Learn how to generate income, which I would say is like, learn how to make a sale. And what is one thing that we can do for more love in our life? Treat every relationship like it's a privilege rather than an obligation. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's really beautiful because it is. It is a privilege. It's a gift that we have coincided with this other human at this time. And our paths have crossed. Like it's just such a gift when you think of it like that. Yeah. I think it's just like we tend to treat the people closest to us the worst. And I think that's why we have so much like separation and divorce and like all those things. It's just like, how do you, just like we're constantly trying to improve ourselves and our businesses and our health and our family. It's like, how can I improve my relationship? Like, well, how would I treat this person if this were a privilege, not an obligation? Yeah. I love that so much. So inspiring. I'm going to go and give my husband a big kiss after this and tell him how much I love and adore him. So thanks for that little bit of inspiration. Layla, this has been so amazing and I've absolutely loved connecting with you. You are, like I said, one of my favorite people to follow online. I love everything that you and Alex share and you guys are helping so many people. You are serving so many people, millions and millions of people around the world. So what can I and the listeners do to give back and serve you today? How can we serve you? Oh, goodness. Well, I really appreciate that for one. So thank you. You know, I would say like serve us by serving yourselves. Like our mission is to make real business education available for everybody. And we've done that by the books that Alex has written and that we've put out there and the courses on our website. You know, go to acquisition.com go watch our free courses, get some skills, go buy $100 million offers, $100 million leads, get some skills. I think that a lot of people would be much happier in life if they had more skills because I think more skills leads to more confidence, 
more ability to have options, which leads to more freedom. And so I would say, go do that. Go listen to either of our podcasts. Mine is Build with Layla Hormozy, The Game with Alex Hormozy, or go to YouTube and you can find videos where we break down even just like, what skills should you get? So I would just say like, go do yourself a favor. But vicariously, it does us one. Yeah, absolutely. Your courses, the programs, the books, the podcasts, social media, YouTube, everything that you guys put out is such high quality content and really, really helpful. Like all the courses and the books, like they're just so helpful. And you guys are just helping so many people. So thank you on behalf of everyone and me for doing all the work that you do. And Thank you for sharing so openly and honestly with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you, Melissa. You're a fantastic host. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I absolutely loved this conversation. I will be going back to re-listen with my notepad and pen and taking notes because there was so much gold in this conversation. And I really hope that you got a lot out of it. And I want to encourage you to take on some of the things that she has spoken about, especially about leadership. I think that's really important. And building relationships, really, really important. So I loved this conversation. And if you did too, please subscribe to the show and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that all of my episodes will just pop up in your feed so that you don't have to go searching for a new episode. Now come and tell me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini what you got from this conversation. I would absolutely love to hear from you. Now before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock, my friend. Now if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Before I go, don't forget to come and join Six Figure Sisters, the free online community for female entrepreneurs. And that is at melissarambrosini.com forward slash six. And I'll see you on the inside.